Hey, it's Luke. It is the Friday after Thanksgiving, and you know what that means. It's the first anniversary of Meg Curtin Raybear coming on range to talk about surviving our first holiday season amid a pandemic with our mental health intact, or at least somewhat intact. And now we're at a point where Meg is a semi-regular contributor with the Range of Care series, and that's extremely cool. This is Range of Care episode three, for those of you keeping track at home. Oh, wait, but that also means we're going into our second holiday season during a pandemic, and oh, shit. This might not end for a while, will it? The very fact that our first official series here on Range revolves around mental health is not what I would have expected when I started this thing, but... It kind of feels right. I don't know about you, but last holiday season, I got through on the assumption that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, which means, of course, the tunnel would end at some point. That's the thing about lights in tunnels, uh, unless it's an oncoming train, and that's a whole other uh, issue. But 12 months later, this is proving to be an incredibly long tunnel. And yeah, the light looks bigger now, meaning the end might be nearer, but it doesn't feel particularly close yet. Things clearly aren't as dangerous as they were before the vaccine, but things definitely aren't normal. And of course, not enough people are even getting the vaccine to reach herd immunity, so the decisive victory that many of us hoped for, that would have heralded coming completely out of the tunnel, doesn't seem realistic anymore. Well, it turns out these vaccines require boosters, which is totally normal for vaccines. To be clear, lots of vaccines require boosters. We have all, almost all of us, gotten many boosters in our lifetimes for various things. But it still feels like we're moonwalking a little, right? Like making the motions of going forward, but somehow going backwards. And maybe not backwards, backwards, but like different word, like not the way we planned word. Like I had fewer family around me this Thanksgiving than last Thanksgiving. And that feels really, really strange to me. None of us were vaccinated last year. And this year, most of us are, but there were just enough, but there was just enough uncertainty and a few special cases a couple of key vaccinated people, not going to mention who, in addition to a child under two who wasn't allowed to get vaccinated yet, that things just kind of fell apart, like entropy almost. I don't think of myself as a traditionalist, and I don't think of myself as overly sentimental, although my friends listening feel free to disagree on either of those points. It also wasn't a bad day. We found a way to see most of the people we would have seen anyway, so we got that sort of moment but kind of lacked the vibe. It was different, and that was unsettling for me. I could picture a future where the things that have been a tremendous comfort to me in my life just don't happen anymore, or they change forever. And that's fundamentally different than I was thinking about this stuff last year. I didn't think about it last year, again, because I think I was focused on the end of the tunnel. So how do we deal with a tunnel? God, I'm just going to beat this metaphor to death, I swear. Just... Some people take out their stress in the batting cages I uh, or boxing. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna torture a metaphor. How do we deal <laughs> How do we deal with a tunnel we don't know the length of when acute kind of society-wide danger gives way to whatever the hell we have now? I don't want to say more more diffuse, less dangerous. For some people it's just as dangerous. And when we stop paying fastidious attention, maybe risk grows in certain ways. Maybe it doesn't. How do we deal with a pandemic that has become endemic? If we don't know when we're going to hit the end of the tunnel, the coping mechanism of just hanging on until then might be wearing thin for some people. It might be completely gone for others. Those coping mechanisms that have got us through to this point might have their own unintended consequences. You're going to, 
in the conversation you're about to listen to, there's a really good example. Meg, Maggie, and Ingrid talk about like the glass of wine to wind down paradigm. There's nothing wrong with neutralizing a stressful day with a drink. Lots of people do it. I do it. When every day is stressful though, and all of a sudden you've been neutralizing stress for 18 straight months, and maybe in the course of that time, one drink doesn't take the edge off. So maybe maybe one drink becomes splitting a bottle with your partner. You can see how that totally reasonable coping mechanism in one context could easily become something else. Like oopsie daisy, I was neutralizing stress and now I have a drinking problem. It's a great illustration, right, of how we need to develop new tools for this new reality, however long it lasts. Our old tools might not be as effective. They might actually be causing harm. I do want to say these tools are going to be unique to the individual. We can't expect the thing that works for you to work for me. And, you know, that expectation could create tension within those people close to you, like families, friend groups, offices. We're going to need to create space for a lot of different people using a lot of different kinds of tools. It can also create guilt or shame when you see a friend thriving or seeming to thrive and their solution doesn't work for you. There's this hilarious interchange about people always suggesting a bubble bath as a way of baptizing away the stress of a day. And that was kind of an issue for Maggie. Maggie doesn't really like bubble baths. Anytime somebody would suggest the bubble bath, I wanted to punch him in the throat. (laughs) So keep looking for what works and you aren't going to get like a step-by-step process here, but more of maybe an algorithm. If something doesn't work, don't do it. And don't feel guilty about not doing it. But keep looking for what works. It's a great conversation and I can't wait to get to it. Before we do, I just there's one more thing that's kind of bugging me. It's been on my mind and I just want to talk about it and then we'll get on to the main event. It's hard and maybe pointless to draw parallels to any other experience we've had because none of us have lived through a pandemic like this. But there is something that we've all collectively lived through in the last 20 years that, I don't know, it's, it's not exactly a one-to-one connection, but it still gives me a little pause. It's the war on terror. I do not at all want to belabor this point, but I do want to just tell a brief story as a way of illustrating one of my concerns about what might happen as, as we sort of move into this indeterminate future. I once got stuck at Logan Airport for like five hours because Cat Stevens tried to fly into America to tour Harvard with his daughter. It was like 2005 or something. The war on terror had become so all-consuming that I almost missed a flight because America's terror response years after 9-11 was so overtuned to danger or the perception of danger that one of the world's greatest folk singers could send a major American airport into a panicked lockdown because he had converted to Islam and said some salty things about America. Safety is vitally important. That's what we've all been consumed with and, and preoccupied by for the last 18 months. But seeking safety is not the same thing as allowing fear to make us neurotic. We've been down that road. It sucks. And it's still dealing with every time you walk to the airport, I want you to think about the way that fear has made us neurotic about the threat of terror. That neuroses, thank God, more or less begins and ends at the airport TSA terminal. (laughs) Uh, Any societal neuroses we develop around a pandemic would probably stretch much further and much wider than that. So let's try to avoid that, shall we? But luckily, I think that's what today's discussion is about. Not about the big institutional response, more about our personal response. We can't prevent America as a nation from becoming neurotic. It already is, maybe in our bones. And none of us can single-handedly end the pandemic, but we can work to live more healthily within it for as long as it lasts. 
So stay tuned for that, huh? Range of Care, episode three, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. My name is Meg curtin Raybear, co-owner of Wellness Therapies and licensed psychotherapist here in Spokane, Washington. And I am here today again with two colleagues, Maggie Rowe, also from Wellness Therapies, and Ingrid Price from Core Counseling. And we are going to talk about pandemic, burnout, flux, exhaustion, whatever you'd like to call it, and building resilience. So the what comes next. Before we talk today, I wanted to share a few observations. I have a vocabulary list I'll start us off with today. Blunted emotions, spikes in anxiety and depression, increased irritability, difficulty making choices, and a desire to drastically change something in our lives. If you follow the psychology news out there. You may have come across a news article a handful of weeks ago by a psychologist, Amy Cuddy, um, that talked about a concept called the pandemic flux syndrome. It's not a diagnosis. It's a way of referring to where we are now. And it does a pretty good job of summing up how many of us feel. The definition of a state of flux is a state of uncertainty about what should be done, usually following some important event preceding the establishment of a new direction of action. So that's from the dictionary, right? And part of what's going on for us is that new direction of action. There's no new direction of action. We are, as human beings, hardwired to seek safety. We do it all the time, frequently, without being conscious of it. Many, if not all of you, have heard of the concept of fight and flight, or fight, flight, and freeze. This is our autonomic nervous system's response to stress and danger. It's a nuanced response. But for the purposes of today, what I want us all to appreciate is that this response is best designed for what we call single incident, single stressor situation. Anne Marston, PhD psychologist and professor of child development at the University of Minnesota, calls it our surge capacity. This is the collection of mental, think fight or flight, and physical, think cortisol, endorphins, adrenaline, uh, adaptive systems that we draw upon for short-term survival. The key here is short-term, yeah, right? The funny thing is, pandemics are not short-term. I know, everybody, sit down, just collect yourselves there for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) They're not short-term experiences, and they're not stable either. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes, yes, they're big, huge impact events, right? But they happen in these pretty finite periods of time, and if we go back to that idea of flux, right, there's this change that we see coming. Okay, I've survived the hurricane, i got to rebuild my house. We put the pieces together. Once that experience is over, those adaptive systems begin to replenish. So 
That's not happening for us now. Pandemics are not short-term, they don't have breaks, and they are laden with unpredictability, regular change, I know we all love that, and uncertainty. Our biological coping systems are like rechargeable batteries with limited output, and we have not stopped long enough to plug them back in. You know, I was actually thinking when you said the hurricane, not only have we seen it before, there's also that anticipation anxiety, right? Like you get the news that, you know, you get all of the weather channels like, okay, this is what you're going to do. And we, you have this like set plan and then the bad thing happens. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to do the cleanup. Right. And with the pandemic, it's been none of that. It's been, okay, this is what you're going to do, but we don't really know that that's what you should do, but maybe try this and then stay home and then don't do anything and then go out. And so that flux of being like, so do I, do I, do I put my toe out? Do I go back in? Where are we at? Um, it's so different. So yeah, there's no replenishing. Right. And I think the piece for me that is remarkable, why I wanted us to be talking about that now, is that we are about to head into the holidays of year two, right? This isn't our first round. This is our second round. And it'll be a little bit different. I think many of us will get to spend time with people. Maybe we didn't see last time. And I think people will get on airplanes and do all those things. And so that's when I was doing all the, you know, kind of sitting down and thinking about what do we want to talk about today? That was the thing that struck me the most is that we're sort of living in this in-between space of the world sort of having some pieces that feel, I'll use the dreaded word, normal, like I'm going to get on an airplane, I'm going to fly to see my parents, but I have to have a COVID test. And I'm, you know, like I have to have, I have this checklist of things that I have to do. And will that actually be the checklist that I need when I get there? Or is it going to change between now and that? Right. And is the plan different in a different city? And what, it, what are the <laughs> local norms there and how we're responding to the p- pandemic? And I love this whole conversation so much because I think we are exhausted by how much we have had to pivot and change. So to Ingrid's point, here's the plan um, for now. But if everybody could get on the same page with the plan right now, and that's vitally important, and tomorrow <laughs> the plan is something very different. Right. And what happens when people don't follow the plan and there's so much anxiety and how do we constantly pivot to the plan changing? I think as parents during the pandemic, we are going bonkers crazy <laughs> trying to keep up with the expectations that are there for our kids. Um, you know, like one example, um, you know, going to see my pediatrician with my kids. Uh, he's always asked, OK, do your boys get an hour of exercise a day? And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're doing awesome. Actually, they're on the rock climbing team and they do parkour and they're doing that four days a week. He's like, yeah, but those are inside. (laughs) So like, as I'm meeting one expectation from the pediatrician, I'm failing another (laughs) because I'm putting my children in in indoor activities during a pandemic. So as you can see, us pivoting constantly is making us bonkers exhausted and (laughs) yeah, a little bit nuts. A little bit, yeah. I like where you were saying, because it really is, there is no right answer. You know, you're doing the best for your kids, which is giving them that social peace and they're enjoying it, which they haven't been able to do that for a while, right? So this is like a treat. And then you feel just miserably guilty because you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. I'm a rule follower, but I had to make an exception because it's either that or screens, right? Mm -hmm. So. Well, I guess I have a question. 
which is if we start with the care providers, if we think about our health care providers, mental health care providers, physical health care providers, and what the news is saying right now, right? So Maggie, you're a pediatrician, the ICU doctors and nurses, burnout, this word burnout. I've heard it a lot Mm -hmm. lately. And it's interesting because it's not a word you want to hear, right? It's a word that when, when I was trained, I took a lot of trauma and vicarious trauma trainings, that the big emphasis was if you've hit burnout, you're in trouble. Your career is over. And really, you should step aside because more qualified, more caring people should step in to care for those people that you cannot serve. Right. Like it's like black line. Such mm-hmm. a judgment laden. Yeah, burnout's not a good word. I, yeah. Avoid that. Word. I thought if I ever experienced burnout, I'm just, I'm done. I'm over. You know, we got a bad message growing up in the social service fields. Right. And yet, What are we hearing about those nurses and doctors and caregivers and, you know, not just in our hospitals either, in our palliative care, in our elder care, people are really, really tired. And is it burnout? I think we could have a whole discussion just about that. It's something, it's flux, it's fatigue, it's exhaustion. While our healthcare providers are tired and they have very good reasons for being so, I think everyone's a version of tired Mm -hmm. and how do we kind of march forward in this land of uncertainty or Maggie I can't remember the word you used but like the wobbliness of of trying to meet one expectation while not meeting the other or having everything change I guess I'd love to hear from both of you as mental health care providers how is your energy level now um you know I would say that I've created a new baseline. Does that make sense? Like I wouldn't hold the same energy level two years ago, but right now I'm like, okay, I think I'm okay given the circumstances that I'm that I'm kind of being thrown at. I met with my doctor recently and he wasn't quite sure what I did. And basically I was like, oh, I'm a mental health therapist. And we just had like this collective sigh, like, like 10 seconds of silence. He's like, oh God, how are you doing? And I'm like, how are you doing? I don't know. I'm, I'm just surviving. Right. Right. So I'm maintaining a lot of the stuff I'm teaching. I'm having to really reflect and make sure, okay, Ingrid, are you doing all of the things that you're telling everybody else to do? When I first started doing therapy, I had this um, amazing mentor and she had been a therapist for way longer than my green, you know, self. She looks at me after a, you know, a long day and this is pre pandemic. And she goes, Ingrid, how much, how much of your cup are you going to give? And I go, well, how thirsty are you? And she goes, that's the wrong answer. The answer is the overflow. That's it. You can only give what's overflowing or else you're going to be depleted. And it just stuck with me so much because I was like, ooh, my cup's feeling a little low. I'm just going to stop working right now, take an hour, whatever I need to do. But it's kind of my own mental check, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was my answer. How thirsty are you? She's like, you're not going to last very long, kid. I'm like, okay, maybe I should rethink that. Isn't that fascinating? I love that example, Ingrid. And I'm so glad you got that mentorship early in your career. <laughs> I think I heard something different. Um, I worked for <laughs> I worked for um, a Catholic healthcare organization, and um, we had a lot of talk about calling 
is this your job or is this your calling? And like, if you're committed enough, if you believed in the cause enough, this is your personal calling, like mission from God um, to give it all. In other words, like, empty your cup. Yeah, <laughs> empty opposite. it. Opposite, yeah, they <laughs> want to do this. <laughs> empty the cup. it or you're disappointing God. <laughs> like it was kind of that kind of message. So <laughs> I think it took a lot of us, you know, in healthcare to <laughs> kind of sort that out for ourselves because then you also get the message of, if you are facing some kind of burnout or some kind of trauma from like the incredibly traumatic things you see in a healthcare organization, um, that maybe you're just not cut out for this. Like, yeah, maybe you're not committed enough or maybe that calling isn't felt deep enough in your bones. And there was the, all that judgment, you know, maybe social work just isn't for you. And so it, I think that that's where a ton of vicarious trauma comes from in healthcare providers is that expectation to lay it on the line, leave it all on the field because if you care enough, it'll be there. And I, I think that's a really not great message um, for people growing up in this kind of field. And I don't know, I think for me personally, like how am I now? <laughs> well, it feels a lot better at 40 than it did at 22. Like mm. I'll totally <laughs> share that. Um, but I, I'm doing the same thing, Ingrid. I'm looking at my clients and I'm like noticing when they're dysregulated and when they are reaching their breaking point and then turning that lesson right back on myself as well. Like, where am I? Have I been walking around dysregulated for the last two weeks? Yes. <laughs> yes, I have. Right. So well, I think this is a really interesting piece that is perhaps a little bit more unique to mental health care than it is to the rest of the healthcare world. And to be fair, we don't have a nurse or a doctor here to kind of sound off on that. But this idea of parallel processing and boundaries. So as therapists, traditionally we're trained to be very clear about our boundaries and to be very careful about self-disclosure. There's a lot that makes sense about this. I'll share a, a little anecdote. When I was training we won't talk about how long ago, one of the things someone said to me that I, I remember kind of having this like harumph response to was, they said, don't ever tell anyone what you do for a living. Just tell them your, I can't remember what they said, but some like research psychologist or something, you know, not, don't tell them you're a therapist. And I thought, well, I don't know about that. And I was definitely coming of age as a therapist in a time when, especially in substance use, there was an, a growing group of substance use counselors who would tell their story as part of being the genuine support person to walk other people in recovery through that process. And there was this whole argument about, well, why should I expect anyone to challenge themselves if they don't think I've walked that walk, right? And so I was kind of coming up in this time frame where those two schools of thought existed at the same time. And I had a lot of training on self-disclosure, and but we've all still kept most of that close to our vest. Well, except that I've always told people what I do for a living because as a mental health advocate, I figure at least that much, you know, I need to be able to do. So a couple of weeks ago, you know, as we were getting ready for this podcast and as I was kind of doing what you two were talking about in terms of like, hmm, Meg, what are you doing to take care of yourself while trying to help others? So in other words, can I get my cup back up to full so that it has even the option to overflow? So I had a series of healthcare appointments. Think massage, acupuncture kind of stuff. And every single practitioner I went to, and I was like spoiling myself. So I had like four appointments in a two-day time period. Every single person told me while I was in 
the appointments, all about their social or political concerns about the pandemic. And I had this experience of being like, wow, I would really prefer that nobody know what I do for a living right now. And it was this very strange moment of realizing just how, I mean, that that's where this conversation really came from is I was like, the world is humming right now. We are all so, um, you, you guys can't see me, but my hands are shaking on purpose right now. We're all so kind of just filled with this exhausted energy. And is it okay to talk about it? And I think, Maggie, to your point, burnout has been traditionally a not great word for a lot of people. For some of us, it is vicarious trauma, right? Those especially our ICU and hospital workers. For some of us, it's exhaustion, that inability to feel like our body is recharging fast enough to handle the constant change. And then for some of us, it's a combination of those things, right? But how are we talking about it in a way where it's okay? And then what does it feel like? And I guess I'd love to hear from both of you about this, to be processing the same things, because this is unique. As therapists, I mean, unless you work in an area that has regular natural disasters, you do not parallel process with your clients. It is really rare. And usually like if someone in your life dies, you take a few days off. It's pretty rare that then a client is going to come in and have someone in their life die, right? Like that, that would be the only other time that sort of thing would happen. But right now we are walking the exact same story as our clients. And how does it feel for that? I was just thinking, like, when have I talked about this before? And I went back into uh, graduate school talking about therapists that worked during 9-11. Mm-hmm. They're both processing some just absolute terrible incident and how hard that was. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not trying to align both what we're going through and that because that's a very unique situation. But that's what popped into my head. Yeah. Just that, like, that would be, I'm scared. And right. you're scared. And how can I be strong for you when I'm terrified? And there, one of the articles I read um, in preparing for this was a series of interviews with psychologists all over the East Coast about how they were doing. And there were a number of different, you know, uh, examples of, of kind of coping and what was coming up. And one of the psychologists was, uh, had worked during 9-11. And she actually talked about how she thought immediately, oh, I have to go get some supervision, right? Only nobody had ever done this before. And so she she was like, there was no one to talk to. And that's essentially what it's like for us. So Maggie, you shared with us, you have kids. You know, how how has it been for you to be working with young people and then also trying to support your own? Oh, yeah. It's quite the juggle. It's quite the juggle because, you know, working with kids in the mental health capacity, you got to work with the parents as well and finding that extra time to uh, connect with the parents and coordinate treatment plans. And then uh, there's no school bus for my kids every Friday. Thanks, COVID (laughs) affecting the busing system. I gotta go. <laughs> you know, it's it's crunched um, everything, yeah. really, and it's been fascinating to see um, just just how every kid has responded to this so differently, including my own. Um, but yeah, again, really like kind of bringing it back to yourself too as the adult, noticing when 
I'm dysregulated has just been such an aha for me is the thing. Like I see it in my clients all the time. And for the most part, I'm like, oh, I'm flexible. I'm adaptable. I'm pivoting, 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 pivoting. And then I'm like, oh, boy. Like, <laughs> Did you just pivot <laughs> off your access? <laughs> I'm, I'm like not right even close to it. So I'll tell you an anecdote. Uh, <laughs> last, <laughs> last Wednesday, I was working with a kid. Session didn't end on time. It ends exactly when I'm supposed to be at my children's school. Mm. Perfect. So I know I'm going to have the parent walk of shame to the office to collect my late children (laughs) 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 who are very much loved. (sighs) So anyways, I'm sprinting downtown Spokane to my car with my parking space. It's way too far away (laughs) because I'm cheap. And by the time I get to my car, I'm sweating and I'm breathing hard. So I'm already dysregulated. I'm just already not in a great space. And I'm anticipating the parent walk of shame. And I am going under the tunnel on Washington Street. And what happens next to me but a bright orange muscle car with a ginormous muffler that does nothing to muffle sound. In fact, it amplifies sound. I don't even know what this is called. This is not my field of study. (laughs) Out of my scope of practice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so Mr. Orange Muscle Car decides the tunnel is the perfect place to make an amazing sound with whatever amplifier he has. And it deafens me and sends me right into this state of hyperarousal, which I teach my clients about all the time. So no thought passes my mind. I lay on my horn and I scream obscenities at this man. And I am a friendly, happy, it's hard to picture it right Child now. Child psychotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> you usually feel like I have my stuff together. I was the description of a volcano. Like, no thought about it. And, like, noticing how long it took me to come out of that state. Yeah. It, it took me a solid week <laughs> to get reset. And... Walking around dysregulated, feeling not comfortable in my body, feeling anxious, feeling on edge. My husband's saying, your volume's too loud. What are you talking about? I'm like, is it? I have a certain intensity level right now. Noting that in myself and then trying very intentionally to reset myself was also the challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we ask our clients to do all the time. Right. Find that reset button. How are you going to do it? And we're regulated when we're saying that. Could you imagine like being dysregulated as a parent and then trying to help that child who's also dysregulated? I mean, you're just a recipe for disaster. Right. So, so first of all, thank you, because that's a really vulnerable moment that you just shared with everyone. And and I appreciate it because it's, it just did a superb job of summing everything we just talked about up. That idea that we're all having these moments of hyper arousal and, I think we're used to them being single incident. And so you get through them or you have enough, your cup is full enough to Ingrid's point that you can use the overflow to be like, oh boy, okay, no no public, <laughs> no public right now, right? <laughs> or whatever your yeah. solution is. But now because that battery is drained, that cup is half full, quarter full, maybe it's been dry for a couple of weeks. <laughs> We're, we're not, we're struggling, right? All of us, even those of us who, to our point, practice helping other people get through these things. So to that point, you know, as 
therapists, we work on this idea that it's okay not to be okay with our clients. This idea that it's okay to be struggling, to be dysregulated in the moment. And what I'd love us to talk about is what does this mean right now? And how are we helping normalize this in real time for our clients? Well, most of my clients heard my orange muscle car story (laughs) (laughs) over the last week. I think it helped my parallel processing as well of that experience. And you know what you were saying earlier, Meg, like we use as therapists, we used to never self-disclose like I am anonymous. I have no family, religious affiliation, political beliefs. I am a blank slate tabula rasa. You will never know. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the thought of this self-disclosure felt like the emperor has no clothes, like the people are going to think that you're a fraud, phony, you have nothing to offer me because (laughs) you are also dysregulated. Um, But, you know, I I have found the opposite to be true. Like, as I've seen, like the sparkle in my client's eyes telling them of this story of, you know, um, it's just this sparkle of recognition that like, yes, I have not completely lost it. If my therapist uh, <laughs> like also kind of lost it, um, it's this common humanity, like going through this collective, terrible long-term experience. So that, that's been my hot take on it anyway, that it's, it's really helped build that connection to normalize it and to use those key moments to share when like, yeah, this is a very teachable moment for it, it was for me. Yeah, I, I kind of go by the rule of thumb. Like, am I self right or am I self disclosing to help them in this moment, or am I self disclosing to help me? And kind of right. filtering that moment of being like, okay, no, this will help them. Then I feel very like comfortable with it. But if I'm doing it to like make myself feel more comfortable, then I'm like, ooh, that's not that's icky. So mm-hmm. having that filter, but absolutely, it, it really does help to humanize us and because we are, <laughs> we're actually humans, believe it or not. I spend a lot of time right now with clients um, kind of changing their mindset into more of a value-based mindset. So they're not focusing so much on their behaviors, but are you living in like congruence to your values? And what are your values? Like, what is the top of your mountain? Not the what and the how, not money, but is it financial security, mm-hmm. right? And so kind of changing it so that even when they're not hitting on all of their their what's, like, or their, like, I need to have this, this, and this, it's like, well, are you living an authentic life? Because that's what you said was your value. And so then they start to say, well, I mean, really, I am. I'm doing all of the things to be authentic to myself. I might not have these things because the pandemic has kind of made that not happen, like my career growth or um, community or events or travel, right? If travel is it's not a value, it's something that you like to do because you like culture. Okay, how can we make that work? So kind of, kind of changing the way they see what brings them happiness instead of like a, you know, a tangible item. It's more of a mindset shift, and um, to be okay with like noticing why they're doing the behavior, right? Like I can do two, I can do the exact same behavior, and one of them is aligning with my value. And the other way is right. avoiding, right? right? So just kind of having them step back, look at it, and then say, okay, you know what? I'm okay. I can see what I did there, and I'm still sticking with this. So that's been my biggest success, I think, in, in navigating with, um, especially I work with a lot of healthcare workers, and helping them be like, you know what? No. Even though this is terrible and hard, I know why I'm in it. 
looking back at the long game mm-hmm. of like why does this matter to you what what beauty can you see in the middle of all of this anyway you know that I, I really like that shift Ingrid going from like it's pretty dang easy in year whatever we are in the pandemic to be kind of like chicken little like the sky is falling nothing is right everything is wrong you know but if you can focus on like where am I making progress towards my values? Right. And avoiding, I mean, in the same thing, avoiding that toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so just changing it, just kind of looking at it from a different angle. I like the groundedness of that approach. I've found that what I like to do with just about everyone is actually ask questions about the pandemic. Like I don't leave it out of the conversation I'm very intentional about saying how stress at work, how are you know, how are you handling the day to day? You know, I might even ask the question, you know, any issues, you know, how are you feeling about the pandemic right now? Because I think the other thing too is I wonder sometimes if people worry that they need to have something more, and I'm using air quotes here, meaningful mm. to be dealing with to warrant therapy. And I want people to hear, no, this this is, you know, we've talked about this before. I think the last time we talked, this came up. But if you had even the mildest of anxiety, to, again, to go back to the rechargeable battery thing, a lot of us coped with a lot of what was going on for us because we had time to plug our battery back in and sit back. And now we don't have that time. And, and do we all need that support? I also think that when we can talk about something, we demystify it. Right, this is a pandemic, and there are, and and I think we are all asking questions like, does it have an end? Will it go away? Will it become endemic? What's it going to look like in six months? And as hard as it is, you, you know, I I think you've all heard me say this. I'm a big fan of difficult conversations. I am, after all, a therapist. Um, and but I also think that that the more comfortable we are with the idea that as human beings and in relationships we're going to have difficult conversations, the the less overwhelming they have to be, right? And I think that's what I'm seeing. We have been hoping that the pandemic is going to like just on that next corner. (laughs) Normal's there. Wait, no, no, no. The next corner. Normal's there, you know? And are we all finally sort of stacked up in this massive pile? (laughs) Because we hit the corner where we're like, oh, damn it. Sorry, people. Uh, You know, the pandemic is still there. Yeah. You know, normal is, is not around any of these corners and we've run around it three times. Is that okay? Is it okay to say that out loud? Like, this is what we're doing. And then Ingrid, to your point, then if we shift our focus, right? If we look at our values, how do I be true to who I am right now in whatever I'm in? There's a huge amount of resilience mm-hmm. building to that. Yeah. And it's, it is kind of finding that aha moment. Like it's finding, I, I, you said it best in our writing like seek the beauty. I like when you said that, like find the beauty, seek it out. It is there at the same time that we're dealing with the pandemic. There's still beauty out there. And I just loved that because I always think about like, how do I, how do I recharge? And for me, it's always been music. I grew up with a musician for a father. So it's always been go back into like finding myself in song lyrics and things like that. Um, Tom Waits once said about songwriting that I, I realized that as a songwriter, I'm creating jewelry for the inside of people's minds. Mm. And I just loved that because I was like, oh my gosh, music is a decoration for the imagination. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. That's beautiful. And so finding aha moments, figuring out where you can like connect 
through, you know, some sort of, I'm not trying to say like, go find a passion. Cause I feel like that's like really exhausting when somebody's like, that's a lot. To did you make on. bread during the pandemic? Um, well, no. in particular sourdough, <laughs> sourdough. You're, I mean, please tell me you have a three-year-old sourdough have, yeah, mother I on have, your counter yeah, right now. I have a starter. Yeah. yeah. She's, <laughs> we feed the baby. It's a thing. But I like the idea of, um, instead of saying like find passion in something simple, like, you know what, just, just be curious. Be curious enough that you may eventually become passionate about it. Right. Just find that curiosity and then let that kind of grow and see what happens. Right. And if you bring it back to your values, then is it easier to be okay if maybe this week we did it, maybe that week we didn't? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And and just noticing like, okay, maybe I maybe that behavior that I did, I was doing it for the wrong reason. You know, like and it goes back to the why versus like everybody kind of the externalization of behaviors. Like I'm running every day. Yes, I'm very healthy. However, I'm running because I'm having really negative self-talk. So am I dealing with the negative self-talk or am I just avoiding? So kind of just recognition of that. Right. If we talk about beauty for a minute, it's October, almost the end of October, and the holidays are coming up. And part of what felt really poignant about sitting down and talking about exhaustion and pandemic fatigue, flux, whatever you'd like to call it is, as I just noted, the holidays are coming up. Any thoughts about that piece as you, you know, maybe not so much talk to your clients specifically about this, because we don't really see a ton of that, like, oh, how am I going to get through the holidays? But because people are listening and because we're talking about this really significant concept of being tired and yet still living in the very constant changing world that is making us as tired as we are, thoughts about getting through the holidays, about connecting, about what happens when we really, really want to connect. And maybe it's even safe enough to connect, but then we connect and it's like so overwhelming that we want to just go back to our room as soon as possible. How do you talk to people about connecting in this ever-changing, sometimes slightly scary, sometimes stressful, sometimes muscle car world. <laughs> I think we're all making very thoughtful faces, <laughs> having a lot of personal reflection on this side. Um, I know for the holidays last year, we were one of those families that canceled it all. Um, just being, having elderly parents. Um, right. Yeah, anyway, we made that choice last year and I don't think we're making the same choice this year. I don't know, as I reflect on that, like, there was a certain amount of grief with canceling all the holidays last year. And I've been trying to think about why was that so hard? What were the things, if you really have to put your finger on it, what were the things that were the most important? Um, You know, and that's going to be totally different from everybody. It might be your grandma's favorite cookie recipe. It might be the connection and the conversation you have with a loved one you don't get to see very often. It could be ridiculous family games or whatever it is. You know, um, but just trying to really reflect on what really matters about those holidays. And then if you are one of those families that isn't quite ready to dive in to things again this year, I would say what creative ways can you make that happen? So like, I don't know, my grandma, before she passed away a few years back, she used to make these scotcheroos or something, but we always called them black cookies because that's what my cousin called them when he was a little kid. And like, could you make black cookies and send them to your cousins? I don't know. Like, what what would be that thread of connection that would help make it not so dark? And that that was what I was thinking with my earlier thoughts as well about seeking beauty. Where where is the light? 
you know, when you are walking around in all this dysregulation and you just feel terrible, everything's awful, nothing's okay, um, really intentionally trying to regulate yourself and ground yourself. Yeah, you're talking about mindfulness now. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other piece I'm telling my clients. Mindfulness means noticing (laughs) what's going on in your body and in your brain. Right now. And not judging it. Like, if you notice what's going on, I'm dysregulated. And why am I like this? I always do this. I'm such an idiot. Like, you know, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, That doesn't help. (laughs) So being aware and not judging it and being very intentional about regulating yourself again. Like, again, I didn't feel better after my, my muscle car experience until I went for an hour and a half hike in the fall leaves. Like... That was the only thing that could get me out of that state. So anyway, you asked about holidays. I talked about something else. <laughs> well, <laughs> if I can take just a minute, um, I think this is an incredibly important piece. You know, there are a couple things going on right now um, that matter a lot to me. One of them is that, uh, and I've probably said this before, but if you allow for silver linings in something like a pandemic, mental health is on the table. And as a mental health advocate for 20 plus years, I am just really happy about that. I'm happy that I'm sitting across from you two. I'm happy that these conversations are happening monthly. I'm happy that people are calling us. I mean, it, it's it's tough for sure because we can't meet the need and that's heartbreaking for all of us. But I'm, I'm happy that people understand that mental health really matters. And that piece, Maggie, that that idea that we start talking about how do we as human beings need to be practicing? Well, it's that idea that it's okay not to be okay, but in that very moment, because we really are hard on ourselves. Oh, very much so. And it feels very cultural and it it doesn't feel like it helps. No, I I was going to go back on the holiday thing. Sorry. Um, You know what my mom did for my birthday a couple weeks ago? I see her all the time. She watches my kids like... And she sends birthday cards in the mail and has done and writes on it, you know, happy birthday, honey. I am always thinking of you. Love you. And I get it in the mail. and I'm like, God, that feels so good. Yeah. Even though I just saw her probably five hours prior. That means like three days ago, she'd go get a card and put it in the mail, you know, the old school snail mail, just so I would get it on my birthday. And I'm seeing her the whole time. But it's those little things that um, just show like, oh, there's compassion and caring and you thought of me in that moment. So I think the cookies, send cards, you know, get off the Zoom and maybe use your <laughs> hands right. with a pen. Right. right. <laughs> Find a stamp. Well, I think you're talking about tangible, right? Tangible, we, yeah. we have shifted into a phase of this journey where one dimensional is, is the computer one or two dimensional. I never understand that difference between 1D and 2D, but that's that flat screen it's good. I mean, I love to be able to hear and see people, but we need tangible. I, I re- refer to it in my own practice as connective tissue. We need to be able to feel and, and sense connective tissue right now. And then if we're grounding that, and, and in particular, if I put all the pieces together, if we are practicing being in the moment, practicing connecting, and then connecting it to our values... Then we're building resilience. And ultimately, that's where I wanted this conversation to go. How do we notice the burnout? How do we get it to resilience? Because we don't know what's around the corner. But we do have to get through the next couple of months. And it would be fun to have them feel joyful. 
And joy is hard when you don't, you know, to, to really sit in and appreciate when you don't know what's around the corner. So does being mindful help with that? And packages. Everybody loves packages. Everybody loves cards. Maybe, yeah, maybe this pe- uh, podcast should really be about a card writing campaign. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so then we have our, our little humans, right? Who this is their second Christmas. Thankfully, Santa does pandemics and does it does them really well. But we are seeing levels of this same burnout in our kids. We're still, you know, the last time we talked, we met and talked about adolescence and anxiety. You know, right at the start of school. I think, I don't know about you, Ingrid, but I think Maggie and I saw a little bit of a dip as school started in sort of people reaching out, largely because, whoo, I don't know about y'all, but the start of school for me felt like I'd never done that before in my life. I And I have high schoolers, so I've been starting the school year for a good... A good chunk. 10 years, and this year I was just like floored by how different it felt, and I don't know, you know, I mean, I do know why, but but now we're seeing that... Parents are still reaching out and kids are still struggling and there's still anxiety. And uh, I'm noticing that while I think our kids were super excited to start school, they're sounding a little bit burned out already, tired of being in class, you know, just, just, they sound like little kid versions of our adult problems. (laughs) I mean, I can speak for my son, uh, first grader. I think he was so anxious as a kindergartner, just with all of the change that now he's in this first grade, which is a little bit more structured. And, you know, we're going to learn letter. You know, we're actually going to write sentences and things. And he's like, did I miss something? Like, why is this so hard for me? And I'm like, no, bud, I think it's hard for everybody. Like, you know, this is just, but then my anxiety as the mom being like, gosh, did I miss something too? So there's this huge kind of I don't know, did I do enough last year? I was trying to be like, have him be more fun, more time with me, you know, and then I'm like, oh gosh, okay. I'm not going to start projecting my anxiety onto (laughs) him because he's still fairly innocent in this world. So, you know, I met with the teacher even, and I thought that was like, oh, Ingrid, what are you doing? (laughs) And, you know, she's like, you're okay. Everything's okay. And I was like, okay, okay. Everybody's okay, so everybody's doing this too. So even as a therapist, when I say normalize it, you know, I'm like, oh God, but when it's my kid, I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with friends about the social and emotional piece. Like what, you know, my my kid feels alone or my kid is struggling this way or that way. And I just have this one answer. If you can take a minute to remember, they missed a whole year of social and emotional development. And Zoom, Snapchat, TikTok, texting do not count. I mean, they had some influence. Maggie, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that, but but they just they're they don't replace lying on the floor in your friend's bedroom at two o'clock in the morning talking about I don't know I anime. Okay, there we go. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice rescue. <laughs> you know, and then I'll have these responses from from the parents going, Oh thank goodness, you know, that was really helpful for you to remind me They missed that. So our sophomores missed their freshman year socially and emotionally. And our seniors missed their junior year. And just all these pieces, are they fine? Will they be fine? Sure. But are we all kind of engaging in this, I'm a first grader and a kindergartner all at the same time kind of experience? Right. right. And I mean, they're really resilient. I think that it's mostly 
I mean, in that case, it was me, let's be honest, but the parents, you know, it's our own, we're so worried about that yeah, year, you absolutely. know, and so we're hyper focused on it. So, I mean, maybe we're, you know, hyper aroused, we're out of our regulated cognition. Um, and so I think just a reflection piece being like, okay, you know what, they're going to be okay. The kids are going to be fine. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a minute, Maggie? Uh, hyper arousal. Yeah. What do parents, how do parents know if their kids have hit that stage? Well, the hyperarousal stage is quite obvious because that is when the volcano actually blows. So that is a massive fit on your hands. That's when somebody has no control. They are just acting from their lizard brain. There is no reasoning, no talking down, no logic involved whatsoever. So hopefully that state is pretty short-lived because <laughs> you usually get tired. That is usually right. what happens. But you know that I, I've been thinking a lot about this piece too. The stage below hyperarousal though is just being dysregulated. And that's when um, you are feeling agitated, you're anxious, revved up, or you're angry. And you're not out of control, but you're also not comfortable whatsoever. And if we're kind of walking around like that, we're still having a hard time learning. Yeah. We're still having a hard time listening to reason. Um, so, yeah, just the other morning, my my eight-year-old was getting dysregulated in the car about something. Like, I think he wanted to play a game on a phone or something. And my 11-year-old was like, he was poking the bear. And I was like, Sam... <laughs> can you see your brother's getting dysregulated? You need to change course right now. <laughs> because I was like, I do not want Luke to hit hyperarousal. And so like I am teaching my kids this vocabulary, <laughs> kind of like living this right now. Like we all just need a lot of help not being the bear right now because there are so many pokes happening everywhere we look. Again, it's the no busing service just on this day. And it's the, <laughs> it's the pediatrician <laughs> subtly shaming you for your choice of exercise activities. And it's like, <laughs> there's just... Subtle, subtle, right? <laughs> right. It's like... I meant outside. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you thinking? Um, you know, I, I also think that as much as we talk about hyperarousal, because that's what we see so often, um, a lot of kids that I work with are in that hypoarousal. So they're going to go that opposite side where they're, they're really, not coming out of their rooms. They're not coming out of their rooms. They're not communicating anything. They're really in that almost freeze type of response. And so getting them to like, I want to see big emotions because I know they're in there, but right. they're just shut down. And so that's also something to just really be mindful of. And I think sometimes those are like the kind of the perfectionist kids that get really like missed mm -hmm. in school settings because right, they're not their grades are okay. Grades are fine. Their tests are all right. They're yeah, getting they're their homework in. They're quiet in line because they're so anxious. <laughs> they're not making any noises. They're barely breathing, you know, those ones too. So yeah, those volcanoes are easy to spot. Yeah. But it's the, when you're, it's the, it's the quite underground lava. That's what those ones are, right? Oh, uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah. Kids, kids, we're all struggling. <laughs> right. Well, that's, you know, that's why we're here. And I think likely we will come back with a slightly different angle on the same general conversation, which is how do we survive well? I mean, that's ultimately what we're getting at. What are the, the pieces that is, you know, because as mental health therapists, this is what we do. We help people notice where they're stuck and why, and then identify the tools that help them to feel like they can move through that. And I think what's nuanced about our work right now is one, that we're going through it with them, and two, that 
it's this constant state. Um, and I really appreciate, Ingrid, your distinction that we are, we sure we're seeing kids who are hyper aroused, but we're also seeing these kids who are shut down. And, you know, is it safe? Um, do parents feel resourced enough to kind of reach out to them and, and help engage them? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Pulling them, like kind of come on, come to the come to the emotions. Let's, let's have some identification. And I think there's a lot of um, social emotional curriculum right now that can be really helpful. Um, but I always like using, I don't know if you like zones of regulation. And so it's more color based for those kids. Like, oh, you know, instead of being like, you look hypo aroused or <laughs> wow, you're shutting down. Like, oh, you now are in the blue zone. Okay. What can right. we do to get you out of the blue zone? And then having like flashcards, like, okay, let's do 10 pushups or let's do, you know, like there's ways to get them um, out of those zones that aren't like, okay, just sit and breathe and think about what you're doing. It's like, no, they can't. They don't have that. They don't have access to that part of their brain right now. So let's give them something else. And then we'll have that communication right when they're in that more regulated spot. Right. And would you share with parents that it's more important to get them moving and to get them sort of, you know, again, back to that connected tissue get them engaged and having them like process or talk about their feelings is, is something that you can get to, but you first have to create that space where they're going to, you know, come out of high, of that shut down space. Absolutely. I always say, you know what, sit, I know how uncomfortable it is when Johnny's throwing himself on the ground and screaming, like, I get it. I have, I have one of those, you know, but when you are trying to like damper his fire, you're telling him that he can't have big emotions. Right. And so I was like, just sit with him. Just sit in your own discomfort. And just when he starts to get tired, right, because that he will, um, then be like, whoa, that was a lot. That was, a, that was big emotions. Like, what did that feel like for you? I just want to sit with you and make sure you were safe. But like, do you want to talk about it? And they might be like, no. And then they, I mean, nine times out of 10, that kid like falls asleep on you. You know, but how wonderful of connection. You don't even have to talk about why he was mad. Right. That's pretty much enough. Yeah. And imagine if we could do that for ourselves. <laughs> right. I mean, what I an need somebody to sit with me while I have my tantrum. No kidding. I mean, they talk about co-regulation and parent and child dyads, you know, or pairs, whatever. Um, a dysregulated child cannot be regulated by a dysregulated adult. So you've got to become a Zen master and manage your own response and your state and get to a place where you can be that guide for that child yeah. to be able to then change their state. Which is only going to happen if you are okay having big, uncomfortable feelings. This is a bit rhetorical, but can an adult notice and or control their own dysregu dysregulation if dysregulation isn't a safe place to be. Right, or right? if they've never been able to even recognize that they are dysregulated. They might, the child's screaming and I'm having some flashback of the way my parents would react to my behavior like that. And my thoughts are saying, oh God, I, I'm a terrible parent. Look how terrible I am. I'm allowing this to be, hit, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like, get out. I have two choices right now. They're very clear. One is I can do something to help myself or two, I can put myself in the back burner and do something to help this child. Right. You got to be very like crystal clear about that. There's two choices. That's it. So then if we think about all this, how do we build resilience? Because I, I guess I want to share an observation that I've had. You know, we've talked a lot about the burnout piece, the caregiver fatigue. 
And then we talk about self-care. And self-care is an interesting concept for me right now as a practitioner because, you know, you'll hear people say, oh, well, that's a little bit overused or, you know, what does that really mean? And I think what I've come to realize is that the challenge I have with talking to someone about what's your self-care routine is that we culturally, I feel like, tend to look at self-care as something we do when we're dysregulated. I'm not feeling well. I had a really long day. I'm going to have a glass of wine and take a bath. Can I just say something on the bubble bath? Oh, yes. Okay, so in graduate school, (laughs) my professors would always say, you have to have a self-care plan. And it's always included the bubble bath. Of course. But perhaps in graduate school, I was frequently dysregulated because I was working too hard. Anytime somebody would suggest the bubble bath, I wanted to punch them in the throat. <laughs> like I had this. You were conditioned like, to think the bubble bath was like the bad guy. <laughs> well, apparently she was dysregulated. A bubble bath is not a self-care option for Maggie. Back away Just, from the bubbles. That's all. That's all I had to show. Oh, okay. <laughs> So just as a note to our listeners, if you have an uncomfortable relationship with bubbles, please just skip to the next option on the self-care checklist. Um, In all seriousness, though, I think your little anecdote makes my point. We have for a very long time, especially in our profession, right? And I think in the healthcare profession in general, we talk about self-care as, oh, you need a self-care plan so that after your really stressful day, you have something to do to... To, to discharge. And don't get me wrong, I think that is an aspect of it. But I think kind of my big, one of my big ahas in terms of where we're at now with the pandemic is self-care is an aspect of resilience, but resilience is bigger than that. And Michael Mattis, he's an MD, he has coined this term resilience bank account. And if you look him up, there's a story about him and painkillers and kind of how he became a motivational speaker. And I mean, he's right. For resilience to work, it's like you don't just have your rechargeable battery, you have an extra one. Mm. And that's more than that in the moment self-care. That's this idea that we are practicing things that are recharging the batteries even when we don't need to be, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you know... (laughs) I did this thing this year, this school year, because it's just been obviously so exhausting. And luckily we live close enough to the school that I can walk my son to school every day. And I realized that I changed my schedule. I just don't even start seeing clients until 11 because he loves walking to school. And I might not be able to pick him up every day. You know, that's not really an option, but we get so much like communication. He tells me more on that, you know, 15 minute walk and it means something to him. Like he really enjoys it. And then I actually am like, God, that feels good for me too. You know, we live pretty sedentary lives, you know, unless we're really actively doing something like working out. But, you know, and then I'm like, you know, I, then I have the morning or I can go work out or I can work from home for a little bit, just doing administration. Like it just changed. And so it's no longer about a bubble bath because I kind of am building up that, chargeable battery. And I think that's what the biggest thing is, is we don't know what self-care is. I think in advertising and social media, it's like mimosas and brunch and massages, but that's really not realistic. That's like more of a one-off versus that daily charging, right? Like doing something that just gives you a little bit of joy each day. And then that's what you fall back on when you're feeling that, um, that kind of fatigue. Right. And what would you say to people about self-compassion? Uh, it's absolutely essential. <laughs> right. I, I'm thinking of it in terms of that resiliency factor. Let me just share this with you guys. 
a handful of things that, from my research, really seem to build that idea of resiliency and having a, an extra gas can, a bank account of it. Radical acceptance, uh, self-compassion, the ability to grieve, and quite frankly, without judgment, and quite frankly, about the same thing again, if need be. Finding things that fulfill you. And then practicing a routine that nurtures you all the time. Yes. 100%. I think why I was so triggered by the bubble bath is because it just seemed hollow to me. Yeah. Like that was not one of the things that sparks joy and beauty and curiosity in the world and appreciation of something. It was just stewing. You needed a in hike. my own filth. Yeah. Stewing in my own filth. See, wasn't effective for oh, me. Little trigger warning for those of you who like <laughs> bubble baths. Maggie is not a fan. I'm really down on them. <laughs> right. And and I think that as we wrap up today speaks really nicely to the bigger picture, which is that, and I'll ask each of you, uh, maybe for one, like we did last time, one nugget, something that you want our listeners to know in terms of as we struggle with this fatigue, a resource for kind of pulling ourselves through and and kind of taking care of ourselves. But I, I'll reflect. I think that is a huge piece. Whatever we do, it has to be meaningful to us. It has to be valuable to us. It has to speak to our values. Absolutely. I guess my one nugget that I'll leave you with today is don't get stuck in the analysis paralysis of the problem and start to um, almost externalize the problem as naming it, right? Like, oh, there goes my mind again, looking for the perfect solution. Kind of giving yourself the grace to separate it and then name it. Okay, there I go again on that thought pattern. It's okay. It's okay to have it, but I'm going to separate. It's not who I am. It's just, it's just that stuck cycle of thinking. So breaking that, being like, is this helpful? Is this realistic? If those two things can't happen, let's move on or reconstruct. So I like that analysis paralysis. <laughs> I live there a lot, so real familiar well, do, area. But don't get stuck there. But I don't get stuck Ingrid there. Ingrid says not to get stuck don't, in the end. Nope. Okay. Two questions. Realistic or is this helpful? Okay. Right? If those things aren't happening, onward. <laughs> Love it. Okay, Maggie's Nugget. This is always game time decision. I should really think about this before. <laughs> right, because I here. ask it each time. <laughs> right. It's not going away, Maggie. I should know better. Um, Okay, uh, we touched on self-compassion, but we didn't talk a ton about it. And I think that that's where my parting thought lies, is we're all going through something yeah. and it really is okay. I can be a child therapist and I can also have my own struggles. We are all such human beings and just giving yourself a little bit of grace, a little bit of easing this pressure right now to be like the perfect put together person like that. It, I don't think it exists. And if it looks like it exists, that person is lying. <laughs> so um, I think that self-compassion for exactly where you're at is kind of the key to building your resilience and moving you forward instead of getting you stuck. Yeah. And I'll just highlight that there's a huge freedom to being okay, not being okay. And if there was ever a time to begin practicing that, it's now. And if you're practicing it as a parent in front of your children, you are giving them the freedom to have real, genuine experiences of acceptance with their own feelings. And it just 
they build that resiliency bank account. I mean, they'll have multiple batteries. This is a really tough experience surviving a pandemic. And if it's taught me anything, it's that, um, that connective tissue, how we come together culturally as just humanity in general, it matters. Can we create space for ourselves and can we create space for one another? Thank you, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. That was so great. I've listened to this like three times now and every time I get something new out of it, thank you so much to Meg, Maggie, and Ingrid. Thanks, as always, to Connor Bacon, Kayla Brook, Brennan Pointer. Could not do this without them. And also, definitely could not do this without our members who support us. If you like the work we do at Range and you want to support us, you can go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. It's kind of like holiday gift giving season. It is technically Black Friday as I record this. So if you were wanted to give like a gift subscription to a friend or a relative or other loved one who might love the gift of incisive commentary, conversation, analysis about the Inland Northwest, you could do worse than giving a gift subscription. You could do worse than give a gift you, wow, that is a tongue twister. Maybe this is the, the universe telling me not to promote myself so heavily. You could do worse than give a gift subscription to Range. Just saying. All right, that's it for us. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye. Bye.